What's happening on NPR Podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Amna. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. High summer, when we know it can get hot, but this hot? 114 in that forecast around 4 p.m. here tomorrow, Friday afternoon. 117 now in the forecast. That could break the 2003 record. And as you look at these early morning lows, lows only expected to dip down into the low 90s, which will put us in record territory those mornings as well. High temperatures continue to set records in the south. And in the northeast, thousands are only just beginning to clean up after historic flooding devastated parts of Vermont and New York. That's just one extreme we'll talk about this hour. Here in Washington, extremist talk has landed one senator in a lot of trouble. Plus, a hearing into the FBI goes off the rails. Keeping us on track this week is Anita Kumar. Anita is the senior managing editor for Standards, Ethics, and Content at Politico. Also with us is Benji Sarlin, who covers a lot for Semaphore as their Washington bureau chief, and Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Thank you all for joining us. So let's start now with a couple of stories that have played out here in Washington, D.C. this week. Each tells us something about the state of our politics right now. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. You really expect the American public to believe that you were not involved in the decisions related to using social media companies to suppress the First Amendment rights of of American citizens? I I can't help what people will believe or not. I can only speak to what the facts are. What are you prepared to do to reform federal law enforcement in a manner which earns back the trust of the American people? First off, I would disagree with your characterization of the FBI and certainly your description of my own approach. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives seems somewhat insane to me, given my own personal background. That was Florida Representative Matt Gates and Wyoming Representative Harriet Hageman questioning FBI Director Christopher Wray. Benji, we know some congressional hearings can get a little weird. How, how weird was this one? It's weird, but not if you've been watching quite a few congressional hearings this year. Um, There are now multiple committees uh, led by the new Republican House majority that are devoted to trying to find politicization and weaponization in government. And a lot of that runs through the FBI and runs across multiple tracks. You know, there are accusations that the FBI is uh, biased in its investigation of uh, Hunter Biden. There's now, you know, a reported IRS whistleblower who's been testifying. There's, of course, course, a lot of conservative skepticism about investigations into Donald Trump and his world and his campaign. And then there's separate issues raised about social media, about treatment of uh, religious groups, about treatment of teachers. Um, But the thing that Ray was getting into there is when he called these insane and ludicrous and pointed to his personal background is that he is a registered Republican appointed by Donald Trump. And he has been making the case that there's just, for all the partisanship around these issues, the problem is not the FBI in this case. It is, 
you can fill in the blank here, the facts that are presented before them. Jordan, Director Ray also talked about the rise of domestic extremism, right? What did we learn about that? He said that even going back before the January 6, 2021 insurrection, domestic extremism was on the rise. He said that the FBI was receiving, I think, 40 percent uh, higher than normal reports about uh, domestic extremists. And he was saying this is coming from all across the political spectrum. He pointed to examples of right-wing domestic extremism, but also some examples on the left where uh, pro-life uh, institutes or figures were being targeted. And so uh, you know, he's pointing to this overall rise in the rancor of our politics now getting translated into you know violence or, or threats of violence. And, and that was an alarming fact to hear from Ray. And it was all, again, against this backdrop of Republicans really on the offensive against the FBI, accusing it of being this you know, partisan, uh, you know, entity. And and so that kind of hampers their legitimacy in a lot of the, their supporters' eyes and trying to go after some of these problems. Anita, talk to me about what the GOP's endgame is here. I mean, the argument seems to be that a Republican first appointed by President George Bush and then again by President Donald Trump is at the center of a vast law enforcement conspiracy yeah, I mean, I think what the Republicans were doing was what we've seen from actually both parties, you know, time and time again over the years. Some hearings are about what they get to say. It's about the messaging. And I think the messaging here was Republicans have been waiting to have a hearing with uh, with Ray, and they got it finally after uh, taking over the House. And they got to bring up a long litany of conservative uh, issues, you know, from Hunter Biden to, you know, the investigations into Donald Trump to, you know, uh, social media, you name it. And they wanted to be able to talk about those questions, look like they were tough. Yes, uh, your point is is well taken that he was appointed by um, Republicans. But, you know, uh, Chris Ray has been this this sort of this guy for Republicans, their punching bag, if you will, f- for a while now. And so they wanted an opportunity to show uh, their fellow conservatives that they could talk about these issues and, and be tough on those. And this is something that is not unusual on Capitol Hill, not with Chris Ray, but just, you know, the person of the moment or who is the person that a particular party wants to, uh, you know, sort of gang up on. And I think that's sort of what we saw here. Um, what's the end game? The end game was pretty much messaging. Well, Republicans think they have one way to take Washington politics out of the FBI, take the FBI out of Washington and send it to Alabama. This move is one of a range of proposals being put forward by House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. Jordan, there's a genuine fight um, about where to relocate the J. Edgar Hoover building here in D.C. But why does Jim Jordan want the agency to move to Huntsville, Alabama? Frankly, he thinks that there will be more conservatives working at the FBI if they were to move it to a red state like Alabama and out of the uh, national capital area, which is is pr- pretty blue. Uh, but let's be honest. This isn't going to happen. Uh, the FBI is not moving to Alabama. The FBI has made it pretty clear it's very important for them to be uh, in the Washington, D.C. area for a number of reasons, logistics, you know, talent, uh, you know, law enforcement uh, has a lot of presence here. And so they want to keep it here. And so they are going to relocate that building at some point. It is an old, outdated building. You can drive down Pennsylvania Avenue and probably see concrete falling from the sky. Uh, but but it's most likely going to go to either Maryland or Virginia, which has been uh, – both states have been vying pretty heavily against one another for that building. It's not going to a place 
like Alabama. We are talking to Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian, also with us, Politico's Anita Kumar and Benji Sarlin from Semaphore. Let's stick with news now that involves Alabama. On Tuesday, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville backed off his defense of white nationalists. He told reporters in the Capitol that white nationalists, quote, are racists. But it followed several media interviews in which he's repeatedly declined to describe white nationalists as racist. Here's Senator Tuberville speaking to CNN on Monday, followed by a response from Senate Majority Leader Democrat Chuck Schumer. My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Now, if that white nationalist is a racist, I'm totally against anything that they want to do. The senator from Alabama is wrong, wrong, wrong. The definition of white nationalism is not a matter of opinion. The ideology that one race is inherently superior to others that people of color should be segregated, subjected, and relegated to second-class citizenship is racist down to its rotten core. Benji, what is behind Senator Tuberville's statements here? Well, that was the subject of quite a bit of debate and speculation while this actually months-long saga was going on in which he kept defending white nationalists from charges of racism. And even among some of his Democratic critics, you know, who talked to our reporters, there was a bit of a, a confusion about whether he was saying something racist or saying something extremely ignorant. And I think his clarification may have pointed more in the ignorant direction, which is that it really seemed from the context of Tuberville's remarks that he thought white nationalist was a word for perhaps white people who happen to be nationalists, as opposed to what it actually is, which is a very specific name for fringe groups that advocate for white domination in politics and society. And the concerns the military have been raising, which is the context for this, you know, they've used examples of people with direct neo-Nazi affiliations or people who participate in the deadly 2017 Charlottesville march where extremists chanted Jews will not replace us. Tuberville seemed to not be aware of this context to some degree or at least confused by it. And I think a lot of Republicans were very happy to see his statement clearing it up. I mean, this is not an area where he was getting any backup from any other senator, even with the, you know, the the way the barriers between extremists and mainstream politics have, you know, fallen. This is not normal talk in the Senate. We should also mention President Joe Biden had strong words for the Alabama senator this week. He said he was jeopardizing national security by blocking military promotions. That's in response to the Defense Department's reproductive health policies. Jordan, we know as of July 7th, Tuberville prevented some 265 senior military promotions. How does this standoff end? What happens now? It's the million-dollar question in the Senate. He has not acceded to the demands of Democrats or even Republicans. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, has said he does not support this tactic. But there hasn't really been an off-ramp yet. Uh, There's votes coming up uh, on a defense bill that includes some provisions that would, you know, end this policy. Will will that vote be enough to, uh, you know, appease him? We don't know, but we'll have to see. We will see. It's the News Roundup. We are rounding up the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. 
Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org slash network. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, this week saw two major developments in our country's ever-evolving reproductive rights patchwork, the FDA approved the country's first over-the-counter birth control pill on Thursday. It's called Opil, and it's made by drug manufacturer Perigo. Here is Dr. Jessica Shepard, OBGYN and chief medical officer at Very Well Health, speaking to NBC about the pill on Thursday. Over the last 50 years, we have used this combination of a pill, which is progesterone only. So I really wanted to emphasize that when we look at the safety and the efficacy of what we're having over the counter now, seeing in the O-pill. Now, this will be slated to be available early 2024. This is why it's a landmark, is because it's going to be available uh, to women who want to make the uh, uh, choice to use birth control and maybe have an access issue or maybe just don't have the availability to get to the doctor. But this is a way for them to have autonomy and making decisions for their reproductive health. Anita, what does this approval mean for contraceptive access across the country? Well, we're still kind of waiting to to see all the details. But um, as she just mentioned, this is supposed to be available in stores and online in the early uh, 2024. And CVS, which is obviously one of the nation's largest Chains, pharmacy chains, has already pledged to carry the drug in its 10,000 locations. So that's a lot right there. We're still waiting to hear about other retailers to see if they'll stock the drug. Um, And we're still waiting on a big question, which is the price. What is the retail price for this going to be? But there is sort of, uh, you know, a desire from the manufacturer and from others that this could dramatically expand access to birth control for people that are uninsured, reduce uh, and perhaps reduce unwanted presence. uh, pregnancies um, after, you know, of course, the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. So the idea is that this would make it much more available across the country to people that have not had uh, this opportunity before. And we're still waiting to see about the price and insurance and how that's all going to work. Benji, we know that proponents of reproductive rights have been calling for a non-prescription birth control pill for years. How big a deal is this approval, especially given the patchwork of abortion access that we have right now across the country? Well, the decision was immediately ha- uh, hailed by groups that uh, you know favor more access to reproductive services. But one thing that's interesting here is the politics on this particular issue are not what you might expect always. Um, quite a number of Republicans have been advocating for this even in elections to try to show and rebut you know, a, a claims that they are extreme and that they will uh, block access to contraceptives. Um, Cory Gardner, the former senator from Colorado, used it very effectively in his 2014 campaign, which I covered, where he was constantly accused of wanting to deny women access to the pill because he supported legislation at one point that defined life as beginning at conception. And he said, you know, to disprove this, I'm going to call for over-the-counter birth control pills. So this is an area where uh, it's not just 
the left, it's not just specific advocates. You'll probably see some Republicans praising this decision as well. Well, while reproductive rights expanded on a federal level this week, Iowa's Republican-led legislature passed a six-week ban on most abortions in a special session on Tuesday night. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds is expected to sign the bill into law. So, Jordan, we know that ban is set to go into effect immediately after it's signed. What does that mean for Iowa residents and for abortion care providers? Well, if it goes into effect, it would obviously make it much more difficult for uh, women in Iowa to get abortions. A lot of women don't even know if they're pregnant at six weeks. So uh, it's it's an effectively – and we saw this in Florida too, which passed a similar law. It is effectively a total abortion ban. Now, we'll have to see if there are people who challenge this in court and whether if you know, whether a judge would, would block this from going into effect uh, before it is scheduled to do so uh, if that takes place. Uh, but th- look, this is going to be a you know, trend going uh, for the rest of the year and into 2024. You're going to see you know, states w- where governors uh, don't support abortion rights try and restrict it as much as possible. You're going to see pushback from uh, supporters of abortion rights, and this is going to figure to be – Again, a major issue in the 2024 election, as it was in the midterms in 2022. Well, here is what Iowa OBGYN Dr. Francesca Turner told CNN about how the ban will affect her job. The medical exception uh, for the life of the mother is clinically meaningless. So when they come in, let's say they're bleeding uh, and it's an inevitable miscarriage, normally I would take them to the operating room uh, to stop their bleeding. Um, But sometimes they come in and they're still very stable and they haven't lost that much blood yet. I'd still take them to the operating room because they're going to continue to bleed. Um, I don't want to wait till they're unstable. I don't want to wait until I have to use a massive transfusion protocol. Um, If I have to wait till they get sick, they're more likely to go in the ICU. They're more likely to have complications or even die. And so at what exact point do I get to save someone's life? I'm, it's very unclear. Anita, the bill's passage wasn't without tension between abortion rights supporters and opponents. Some even chose to face off at the state capitol. What does support for abortion rights look like in Iowa amid these restrictions right now? Yeah, I mean, it's this is it's important to know that this has been going on in Iowa for a while. I mean, we talk about sort of the more than a dozen states that have had these similar bans or some bans um, since the Supreme Court decision. But actually, this is similar to uh, legislation that had passed earlier, uh, several years ago, but it was actually blocked by the courts. And so the governor, who, as you indicated, supports this bill, called a special session and asked, uh, you know, the legislature to take this on. So, I mean, we're likely to see that this is going to be challenged again. Uh, as we've just heard, there are concerns about the bill has several exceptions, but there are concerns about what those exceptions mean exactly and and how they would work. And so I think that this is going to continue to be sort of a push and pull in Iowa. We don't know what the courts are going to do, if they're going to block it, how that's going to work. And we're going to continue to see what we've seen, you know, really for the last year, which is in states where there are bans or near bans or partial bans, um, we have seen. Uh, people, women flock to other states and uh, have to go find other places uh, where they can get uh, an abortion procedure. So, uh, you know, this is going to continue this patchwork around the country that we've talked about. Benji, meanwhile, Iowa specifically is obviously a major site for political activity ahead of primary elections. How might this ban and this current battle influence that upcoming presidential race? 
Uh, I think you could see it influenced in a major way because one of the big dividing issues among Republicans has been how willing they are to embrace, for example, six-week bans and then looking further out to that, a national ban of any kind. And, you know, I'm guessing this topic is going to come up quite a bit today where our own reporter Shelby Talcott is in Iowa at a uh, event held by the Family Leader, which is an evangelical group that's featuring many of the candidates, including Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, all of whom have tried to distinguish themselves on this issue in some way or another. So uh, notably, by the way, absent from that event is Donald Trump, who has tried to hedge a little bit more compared to some of the candidates on issues like this. Anita, when you look more broadly at the 2024 presidential race, we know President Biden's campaign, his re-election campaign, says that they'll be talking a lot about abortion rights, and Vice President Harris is expected to go out and message on that quite a bit. But do you believe that abortion rights will be a major issue for that general election? I do. I think that the Democrats, um, as you just kind of indicated, feel like this is uh, something that they can energize their voters about. They felt like that last time. Of course, we're getting further and further away from the Supreme Court decision. But what we are seeing is what we're just talking about, which is individual you know, states making these decisions through the legislatures and the governors and, and policy. So I think it will continue to be uh, for discussion. And I think that the president and the vice president really feel like this is something they should go out there and talk about. And so I expect them to talk about this. On the Republican side, you'll see some want to talk about it. Some may not want to talk about it as much. And so there will be that divide even before we get to the general election with these Republican candidates kind of saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm more pro-life than you are, that kind of thing. You know, I support, you know, I I oppose abortion in all cases or some cases or more cases. And I think we'll see that play out on the debate stage in in the Republican side. And then, of course, we'll have the Democrats really pushing on this in the general election. Meanwhile, flooding devastated parts of Vermont and New York this week. As much as nine inches of water poured down in some places, about two months of rainfall in just two days. The flooding we've seen is historic. And as waters begin to recede, at least for the time being, we'll be surveying the damage uh, done to infrastructure, homes, and businesses. And again, this may not be over. With rain in the forecast and nowhere for it to go, we could see waters rise again. That was Vermont Republican Governor Phil Scott at a press conference on Wednesday. As of this morning, one person was killed in New York and one in Vermont due to those quickly rising waters. Anita, just how bad was the damage and in New York and Vermont due to this week's floods? Really struck by that fact that two months of of rain in two days. I mean, it, it was it was very bad. As you mentioned, the deaths, it also destroyed buildings. It obviously caused a lot of uh, travel problems. And it was just like a confluence of events where the ground was already saturated. There was this big, you know, moisture plume that the, the storm was sort of slowed over top of New England. And it just like all these different things, factors put together really made this as, as we just heard, a historic uh, problem and one that's not going to go away overnight. Um, the president did approve an emergency declaration for Vermont, so that frees up additional sources, resources um, to help the state recover. So I think we're going to continue to see what that recovery looks like in, in the coming days. 
Meanwhile, human-caused climate change is making our seasons more extreme. While the Northeast was hit by massive rainfall this week, much of the rest of the country was sweating in extreme heat. More than 113 million Americans coast-to-coast were under a heat alert this week from Oregon down to Louisiana. Las Vegas and Phoenix are expecting temperatures this weekend as high as 110 degrees. Jordan, this summer's heat wave follows a longer trend of rising temperatures worldwide. What are we seeing from local governments in terms of how they're responding to this extreme heat? They're having to take some drastic measures to protect the health and safety of their residents. You know, in Phoenix, for example, I was just there with my family a couple months ago, and the hiking there is great. But when the temperatures get that high, the city is actually shutting down those hiking trails in the middle of the day, and they're not allowing hiking with dogs or pets because it's considered dangerous. And they're trying to open you know, homeless shelters to try and get people off the streets, get them hydrated, get them in air conditioning. Uh, but look, the longer this goes on, the more those resources are strained. You know, people are having to stay inside. You know, people want to get outside and, and live their lives. And, and this is really having an effect uh, on, on people's everyday lives as, as temperatures uh, reach records across the country. Anita, this is one of those topics we see come up often in politics. What kind of messaging are we seeing from our political leaders about these rising temperatures? Well, I think we've seen what we tend to see every time there's some of these extreme weather, um, you know, moments, which is actually happening more and more, as you just mentioned, which is, you know, we see that Democrats, largely Democrats, not all, but mostly, uh, uses an opportunity to say that, Climate change is, you know, making, uh, doing all sorts of things. It's not just extreme heat. It's it's all sorts of types of weather activity that um, has made things more dangerous. They want to talk about it. They want to say, look, we've got to get a handle on this. We've got to do different things, um, and we've got to really do a lot. And we see Republicans generally, not all Republicans, but mostly not wanting to talk about it or questioning it. Um, and so, you know, we really over and over, every time there's something like this across the country, we see sort of a little bit of a political debate, but that doesn't really go anywhere. And so I expect this to be no different, which is these two sides cannot agree uh, on what to do, or sometimes the Republicans don't want to do anything. And uh, that's sort of where it is. I would expect that Democrats and the president and others to to continue to talk about this and how we uh, how the United States has to try to get a handle on this. Benji, meanwhile, we know that this is a huge part of President Biden's agenda, passing funding for major climate change uh, answers and he thinks address the climate crisis. Is this the kind of thing that Americans are going to be voting on? Is this issue that important? Well, it's interesting because the Biden administration has passed really unprecedented investments, even on a global scale, in uh, investments in, as you said, renewable energy, electric vehicles, uh, technologies that might potentially offer even more breakthroughs. But a lot of this is not going to be framed in the context of climate change. Uh, Biden and Democrats are out there already selling this as jobs, 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 manufacturing, manufacturing, and in many cases as a bulwark against China, which is a way to bring many of these jobs, which are currently based in China, to uh, plants in the U.S. So climate is absolutely at the center of it. The voting uh, pitch is not always going to be about climate. 
Before we head to break, a quick and gentle reminder that if you have a will, make sure it's clear and folks know where to find it. On Tuesday, a jury in Michigan brought a four-year family conflict over the estate of Aretha Franklin to an end. Years after her death, two handwritten documents were found at her home in suburban Detroit. One was in a locked cabinet, the other in a notebook wedged between cushions on the couch. And because the details were different, it triggered a family disagreement over who was entitled to what. It took a jury less than an hour to decide that the four-page note written by the Queen of Soul in 2014 and discovered under a couch cushion should serve as her will. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit NPR.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at npr.org. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get back to the roundup. Hollywood is now at a standstill. On Thursday, TV and movie actors in the SAG-AFTRA union announced they would be joining screenwriters on strike. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly. How far apart we are on so many things. How they plead poverty. That they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. That was SAG-AFTRA president and actress Fran Drescher. SAG-AFTRA is a labor union representing media and entertainment industry members. NPR and WAMU, 1A's parent station, are represented by SAG-AFTRA's radio broadcasters division. They are not subject to the contract in question here. The strike officially begins today, with actors set to join the picket lines with writers who've been on strike since May. So Benji, kick us off here. Why did these negotiations crumble? Well, things always get harder when there's less money going around. And in this case, uh, the major media companies made a big bet on streaming, and it's not going so great. So that's one stumbling block. And the big issue here really is one of them around streaming, which has really changed how actors and writers work and how they get paid. You know, the old way they often made money was you work on a show, and then if it's a hit, you get paid residuals when it's aired again or when it's licensed to other stations or in other countries. But, you know, streaming doesn't have that. A show just goes up worldwide on Netflix, and that's it. And not only that, the season lengths are less. You know, they're often just six or eight or ten episodes versus, say, a typical 26 order for a network TV show. 
And there aren't even clear viewer numbers that say, you know, whether it's a hit. So it's hard to tell what's profitable, what your leverage is. So the union wants something that compensates actors in a way that's closer to the old system to make up for it. And the other issue, which was also big in the writer's strike, is AI. And Fran Dresser said she specifically objected to a proposal that would give studios the right to make AI versions of extras and use their likenesses in the futures. Uh, Actors and writers, they're worried about new technology cutting them out of the picture or limiting demands for their services. So, Benji, do we know what this means for Hollywood going forward? Well, here's a dramatic illustration. Right out the gate, you know, there's this big new movie from Christopher Nolan Oppenheimer coming out. I'm very excited to see it. (laughs) You know, actors have been going to premieres promoting it. And as soon as they voted on the strike, these stars walked out of the premiere in England. You know, that's it. They're on strike. (laughs) So you're seeing the impact right away. But especially combined with the writer's strike, yeah, this is going to slow production on TV and movies for as long as it goes on. And if it's a prolonged strike, you could start really seeing an impact. We'll wait to see what happens next. Meantime, turning back to politics, in a new court filing on Monday, former President Donald Trump asked a judge to delay setting a date for his federal trial until after the 2024 election. Trump is set to stand trial for charges related to hiding classified documents at his Florida estate after leaving office. He and his valet have pleaded not guilty. So, Anita, what reasons did Trump's lawyers give for requesting that delay? Well, they basically argued that proceeding with this case while he's a candidate for president would be make it virtually impossible for them to seat an impartial jury. Um, and he said it would create a huge problem in the jury selection and that he would not be able to get, or neither of them would be able to get a fair and imper- impartial uh, verdict. And so he's basically saying, you know, while while I'm running for president, we shouldn't have this trial. And of course, uh, as we well know, you know, the presidential uh, race is, is just really beginning here. And there's the, he's expected to do well, or at this moment, still expected to be his party's nominee, and then he would go into a general election. So he is essentially asking for this to be pushed off until the election is over. And of course, if he wins a general election, he would likely uh, make all sorts of cases that a president couldn't couldn't face these charges as he did uh, when he was president uh, last time. So uh, he's essentially asking these to be put off indefinitely. Jordan, the timing here is of enormous consequence, potentially. So how likely is the judge to agree to that delay? It's always hard to predict what a judge is going to do, <laughs> right. uh, you know, but uh, you know, they, the judge initially wanted the, the trial to start by August, and the, the, the government actually wanted that delayed to December. And so there, there is a desire for a delay on both sides. Now, one's more extreme than the other. Uh, but I will point out the judge in this case right now is Aileen Cannon. She uh, is a judge who was appointed to the bench by Donald Trump, and she – Granted, one request earlier in this case that a lot of legal experts thought was dubious, which was uh, appointing a special master to review uh, the, the classified documents that were pulled out of Mar-a-Lago during that FBI search back in la- uh, last August. So, uh, you know, she may be amenable to some unorthodox request by the president, but, uh, you know, just gut reaction, it seems like delaying it till after the election would seem uh, a, a bit too much of an ask for the former president. Well, Mr. Trump is just one of 11 candidates running for the GOP nomination. It can be hard to stand out in such a crowded field, but North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is trying. Burgum has promised to send a $20 gift card to anyone 
who donates $1 to his campaign. Yeah, you, you heard that right. Give a dollar, get a $20 gift card back. So Benji, he's offering this deal to the first 50,000 people who donate. Is, is this legal? So first off, let's talk about why he's doing this. This is the only reason to do this, is to try to make the debate stage, which requires you, according to the Republican Party set rules, to get 40,000 individual donations. And that's tough for a small-time candidate. Now, whether it's legal is debatable. Some experts have suggested it might violate the law against straw donations, which you see prosecuted often. Uh, That is the law against giving someone money to pass off a donation as their own. But that's usually done in order to get around legal limits on giving, which are only a few thousand dollars per individual per candidate. This is fully transparent, and it's a whole lot weirder and has mostly to do with the party rules rather than the campaign rules. So, Jordan, candidates have to have at least 40,000 donors to qualify for uh, that debate next month, among a, a number of other rules. How, how does this strategy make sense for someone like Burgum in particular? Well, it's important to know about Doug Burgum that he is a former software executive and billionaire who definitely has the ability to self-fund his campaign. So for a guy like him, he can afford to give lose money essentially on this scheme, uh, you know, giving away $20 for each dollar that's donated. Uh, for another candidate uh, that, that might have less money in the Republican field, they might not have the wherewithal to do it. They need every dollar that comes in uh, from these small donors. And so uh, that, that sort of puts Bergam in the special category. And Now, whether it's going to work is, is going to be interesting. I mean, uh, on one hand, you know, a lot of people wouldn't mind a $20 Visa gift card. But on the the other hand, a lot of people haven't heard of Doug Burgum. So uh, will they know enough to to actually, uh, you know, try and take advantage of this offer? Anita, I guess more broadly, what does this move mean for what it takes to be successful in this 2024 race right now? What does that say to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess Jordan's right. Not a lot of people have heard of him, but we're all talking about him now. So maybe uh, any attention is good attention. You know, I think we've seen candidates and we're seeing other candidates kind of um, do these little, uh, you know, these, I don't know what you want to call them, these these ideas to get other people to, to donate. You know, it's not quite the same, but the Miami mayor who often, who is not, you know, well-known either is saying anyone who donates any amount can get a free t-shirt. So, I mean, we are seeing candidates trying to, uh, you know, encourage donations, whether they need the money or not. Part of this is they're trying to get attention. Part of this is trying to make the debate stage. Part of this is just trying to get any uh, anything they can uh, and not have all the attention be on Donald Trump, because that's really what they're all doing right now is running against Donald Trump. And so, you know, you're going to see them continue to just come up with these uh, different strategies to try to get some attention and try to get some money and be on that stage. Being on that stage has become, you know, more and more important as they are trying to break out of this Uh, you know, get the attention away from Donald Trump. Also, to qualify for that stage, candidates have to be above 1% in three different polls. They also have to sign a so-called loyalty pledge to support the eventual GOP nominee, no matter who it is. Some candidates, including former governors Chris Christie of New Jersey and Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, aren't too happy about that last one. Anita, who has qualified for that primary debate stage so far? So we're still seeing what's going on. We're going to find out about donations pretty soon here, and and this requires candidates to kind of say how many donors they've had. And also, we have seen one poll, but we need to see more polls. So they must uh, hit at least 1% support in three 
national polls, or at least one percent in two national and one early state. So we saw one uh, that just came out, and we saw probably not surprising uh, that about uh, eight or so candidates look like they are on the right track at least at this point. No surprise there that Donald Trump would be there if he chooses to go. Uh, the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who is sort of second place in some of these polls that we've seen, and then we saw some others with a lot less uh, support, but still might make it. Uh, South Carolina uh, Senator Tim Scott, the former governor of South Carolina Nikki Haley, Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, Chris Christie, who has said that he has made it because he uh, has enough donations, Asa Hutchinson, and Vivek Rasaswamy. So we we see these, you know, sort of everyone at this point. There are a few others that haven't really looked like they're making it, but we will be seeing in the next few weeks who is officially going to be on the stage. Let's turn now to some economic news. Inflation fell to 3% in June. That is its lowest point in over two years. This comes after the Federal Reserve began raising interest rates 16 months ago to tamp down on inflation. Jordan, this, of course, began because of the pandemic and the turmoil it sparked in supply chain and global economy. At the height in June of 2022, inflation reached over 9%. What do these falling numbers realistically mean? for Americans right now? Well, the, what it means is that the, the increase in, in prices is slowing. That doesn't mean that goods are all of a sudden cheaper, but they're just not getting more expensive. But, you know, that's good news that for American consumers. That's the first step that's needed. What it also might mean is that the Federal Reserve might soon stop its campaign of hiking interest rates. Now, they're expected to do at least one more hike at their meeting later this month. But going forward, they could slow that down, meaning that, you know, mortgage rates eventually will stop going up. And, if the uh, you know, inflation target reaches the Federal Reserve's goal of two percent, they could eventually bring those mortgage or those interest rates back down, which means again lower mortgage rates, easier uh, for consumers to get credit and businesses too. And so uh, this is all around good news to the economy that it's slowing down, but it, it doesn't mean that Americans are going to feel it right away. Also worth noting, the Federal Trade Commission is appealing a ruling that would allow Microsoft to purchase video game giant Activision Blizzard. The FTC has been trying to block the nearly $69 billion merger since December. Speaking to Vox, an FTC spokesperson said, quote, we're disappointed in this outcome given the clear threat this merger poses to open competition in cloud gaming, subscription services and consoles, end quote. Uh, Benji, what do we know about the reasoning behind the judge's ruling here? Well, the judge's ruling is that they did not think the FTC was likely to win on the merits and that the core of their case was incorrect. And the battle here centers around the game Call of Duty, which is one of the most popular franchises in the world. I play it regularly. I'm terrible. You know, 14-year-olds <laughs> destroy me all day at it. But, you know, it is very fun. Um, and the FTC's argument was that Microsoft was buying this company uh, along with other major companies recently in order to keep it from other systems like PlayStation or Nintendo and especially to keep it from the emerging world of cloud gaming, you know, which Microsoft has been he investing heavily in. This idea you pay a subscription and you could essentially pay games right off the internet. Um, the judge didn't buy it. They seemed convinced by pledges by Microsoft that they would keep it available for other consoles and for other cloud streaming services, at least for an extended period. But the government thinks they got that wrong. The FTC argues that they're, they judge missed other ways by which they can still make it a worse product potentially uh, for, for other companies that use it. Uh, and they're hoping to win on appeal. 
Jordan, before we go, I got to get you briefly on this one story. In AI news, comedian Sarah Silverman is suing Meta and OpenAI for copyright infringement, saying her work was used to train their AI systems. She joins two other authors in a class action lawsuit against those companies. What's the argument here? How are they using copyrighted works? Well, the OpenAI, you know, ChatGPT, these are large language models where you plug in, you know, text of a book, a speech, a comedy routine. In the case of Sarah Silverman, and uh, the, the the model will learn from that and then be able to regurgitate something. If you were to type in, you know, write me a Sarah Silverman routine, like it could do it. And so she's arguing that it's it's infringing on her copyright to that material. This is. Legally uncharted territory, uh, you know, AI has really risen in prominence so quickly. And so we'll see how the court system handles this. But you can expect all these kind of new legal challenges coming up with AI. You know, labor is very concerned about it. A lot of sectors are concerned about it. Uh, This isn't the end. The future is now. My thanks this week go to Jordan Fabian from Bloomberg News, to Politico's Anita Kumar, and to Benji Sarlin from Semaphore. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember Czech author Milan Kundera. Kundera passed away in Paris this week. According to a spokesperson for the author, he succumbed to a long-term illness. He's perhaps best known for 1984's The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which gained international success and recognition. It was later adapted in the U.S. into a 1988 film starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Like much of his work, the book was heavy with political themes, mostly about the cultural and political oppression of the former Czechoslovakia by the Communist Party in power. Although Kundera embraced communism early in his life, he quickly grew disillusioned with the party. His debut novel, 1967's The Joke, gave him a reputation as a dissident and placed on state surveillance. Kundera eventually fled to France in 1975 and had his Czech citizenship revoked in 1979. He became a French citizen in the early 80s. Milan Kundera was 94 years old. Up ahead on the global edition of the News Roundup, President Joe Biden met with NATO leaders in Lithuania this week. The longest-serving prime minister of the Netherlands announced he would step down this week. And the latest update in Brazil's efforts to fight deforestation in the Amazon. All that and more after this short break. Stay with us. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. It was a busy week at NATO's annual meeting in Vilnius, Lithuania. There was support for Ukraine. Allies have already provided tens of billions of dollars in military aid to help beat back Russia's invasion. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops have been trained and equipped by NATO allies. And as Ukraine continues to liberate territory, will stand by them for as long as it takes. And a surprise move by Turkey after weeks of tension. 
We evaluated the expectations of our country and the current situation of Sweden in terms of fulfilling its commitments to date. We determined the steps to be taken in the coming period regarding Sweden's membership process. Japan insists its controversial plan to release treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant meets international standards, but the move has sparked protests and anger at home and abroad. We will have all that and more this hour with James Kitfield, senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Presidency and Congress, and the author of In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Hi, James. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Kaylee Lines is with us, anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV. Thanks for being here, Kaylee. Happy to be here. And Jack Detch is national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Jack, always a pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Amna. So we kick off today's program in Vilnius. President Joe Biden got just about everything he wanted from his visit to the NATO annual summit and left us with lots to unpack. So let's start with Ukraine's request to join the alliance. Jack, before the start of the summit, President Biden told CNN Ukraine was not ready for membership with a full-scale conflict underway, but he promised unwavering support. What else did we hear from other heads of state and NATO on Ukraine? Well, at times, the NATO summit actually felt a little bit more like a Thanksgiving dinner table squabble as opposed to a a kumbaya moment or or a friendship moment. You saw Western officials not feeling the love from Ukraine. Jake Sullivan coming out and saying, of course, the the U.S. National Security Advisor, uh, telling a Ukrainian activist that the American public deserved respect and gratitude uh, for the weapons that, that had been delivered to Ukraine. Ben Wallace, uh, the British Defense Secretary, saying that they're not Amazon uh, when it comes to weapons deliveries. Now, of course, the West may not be Amazon here, but one of the messages that came out of the summit when it comes to Ukraine's NATO bid, some restrictions may may apply. See store for details. Uh, my colleagues and I were reporting this week the Biden administration pumped the brakes on a plan that would have seen NATO actually hand Ukraine an invite at the Vilnius summit. That was pulled back by the Biden administration fearing that the the lines about when the guns fell silent or uh, sticky questions around Ukraine's actual territorial integrity would have been difficult to square with Article 5 and, of course, that one-sixth of Ukraine that's actually claimed and occupied by Russia. So the administration's response sort of showed that when it comes to Ukraine's NATO bid, there's still a lot of concern about Russia's nuclear saber-rattling even after the $42 billion that the U.S. has pledged in weapons to Ukraine. Jake Sullivan coming out and saying... Look, if if Ukraine's bid towards NATO goes forward, NATO's at war with Russia, and that's not a line the president's willing to cross. Well, we got this note from Reed in Havana, Florida. He writes, I must agree with President Biden that the timing for Ukraine's membership in NATO must occur when peace is attained. The world cannot afford a war with Putin's Russia. Reed, thank you for that. James, we've heard from President Biden say that NATO has never been more united. But did this summit reveal there are some divisions within the NATO leaders? There are always divisions within NATO, and they paper over them with these communiques, but it's a it's an alliance of 31 
and 30, soon to be 32 countries. Um, it's, it's, there's all disagreements. And that this is the worst crisis NATO has been in since the, easily since the Cold War. And there weren't many times during the Cold War when it was this fractious. So I, I was actually struck by how much was accomplished. Uh, you know, there was, of course, Zelensky is going to come in there and ask for everything. And he's going to know he's not going to get it. And of course, Biden is going to say, look, I'm, we're not going to commit to a World War III with Russia, which is if you give Article 5 to a country that's at war with, a, with Russia, you are basically saying you're going to send troops and, and get engaged in that war. So what we got was, you know, before the summit, there was talk about Israel being the Israel model where we would just support them with a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of um, equipment, weapons, et cetera, but not pledge, not a treaty pledge to defend them. Um, now we're already talking about a pledge that they will be a NATO member. It's just a matter of how this ceasefire and then a, the eventual peace that must come from this in the end it, is structured so we can understand what we're getting into by bringing them into NATO. Uh, they also got pledges from the G7 of a lot more support. They got pledges of bilateral pledges of weapons from France and from Germany and other places. Um, and we got Sweden into the alliance. And that was something, you know, that was a, a major get. Uh, and Turkey backed down from its opposition to that. So, you know, from someone who's covered a lot of NATO summits, this one was had the meatiest gets I think I've ever seen. We'll talk about Sweden in just a moment. But, Kaylee, I, I want to get your take on the messaging we heard from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the start of the summit. He did not seem thrilled. In a scathing tweet in, on Tuesday, he accused NATO of weakness, threatened not to appear at the first session of the NATO-Ukraine Council. His stance appeared to soften over the course of the summit. But what do you take away from his messaging in particular? Yeah, I mean, it certainly was quite aggressive. He wasn't pulling any punches in that tweet he put out on his way to Vilnius, which said that the reluctance to give his country a clear timeline on membership was, quote, absurd. And as you said, he was talking about weakness. He said uncertainty is weakness. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this didn't really sit well with the other leaders there whose countries have been providing a steady flow of funding and weapons for Ukraine. So, after that tweet at a dinner with several uh, of the leaders there, according to Bloomberg's reporting, though notably President Biden was absent at that dinner, he was told basically that he needed to cool down and take a look at the full package he really was getting uh, from NATO. Got some pretty frank criticism for overstepping. And the UK Defense Secretary, Ben Wallace, who was mentioned earlier, actually to told reporters the following morning that whether we like it or not, people want to see gratitude. And over the course of the summit, as you were alluding to, it did seem that he did soften and was trying to express more of gratitude, thanking uh, these participating countries for their support of Ukraine. But it definitely, you know, added to the drama over that several day period. According to the Washington Post, the White House was so irritated by the whole thing that they actually considered scaling back the already scaled back invitation for Ukraine to join the alliance eventually. Jack, let's get to that other big news that James mentioned, that Turkey cleared the path for Sweden to join NATO. We heard a little bit from Turkish President Erdogan about Sweden meeting conditions that changed his mind and blocking the membership. What do we know about why he did reverse course? Well, it's sort of like they say in poker, right? You know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Erdogan didn't have a strong poker hand to begin with, and he'd sort of run out of cards. He'd gotten Sweden, even before Vilnius, to concede to amending its constitution, to imposing new counterterrorism laws, to extraditing a bunch of Turkish nationalists or uh, Kurdish nationalists, I'm sorry, and even had actually gotten uh, Turkey's EU bid kickstarted again. 
Of course, now he has out of Vilnius the pledge of F-16 fighter jets from the United States, which the Biden administration is going to have to work on. But even if he's a bit out of cards and without moves to play, it seems like Erdogan is stalling still a little bit when it comes to Sweden's NATO bid. He's not actually moving forward with the parliamentary accession vote until October. And that's a point in time where NATO had actually hoped to accelerate its defense plans with Sweden inside of the alliance to patch up some of those holes in its defenses in the north. Now it can't do that. Uh, And not to mention Congress has some bad blood that needs to be ironed out before those fighter jets can go forward. Uh, Remember, there's a a long laundry list of grievances between Congress and and Turkey. Uh, Turkey bought the Russian S-400 defense system. Uh, They were kicked out of the F-35 program. They've detained Americans in the past. And of course, they have beef with Cyprus and Greece. So Bob Menendez, the the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, says he's talking with the administration to iron it all out. But this still looks like a bit of a nail biter. We are speaking with James Kitfield from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, Bloomberg TV's Kaylee Lines, and Jack Detch from Foreign Policy. James, I want to ask you, too, about another big move from this summit, the members setting a 2% of GDP floor on defense spending. That's a minimum after this week's summit. Why is that an important step for the alliance? Well, they actually committed to that in 2014, this 2%, um, but they didn't They didn't reach it. And, uh, you know, a lot of us thought that when President Trump, you know, pressed them and basically threatened to, to throw a hand grenade in the alliance, that that would get their attention. And our, our allies were still slow. But Russia invading Ukraine has gotten everyone's attention. And what we've seen now is uh, of the big three, Germany has been has been the the worst uh, the worst in this regard in terms of not meeting its its pledges of defense spending. It next year will meet that two percent um, that that two percent goal. France is is almost there and will also meet it probably in the next year. UK is already there. So the big three are um, are meeting that goal and. You know, some of the eastern countries are already above that goal, like Poland and the and the Baltic states. So, this uh, war has gotten everyone's attention. Let's turn now to more news coming out of that NATO summit. President Biden concluded his trip to Europe in Finland on Thursday, showcasing NATO's newest full member. There, he said that he and other NATO leaders showed the world that the military alliance emerged, quote, more united than ever. But things got a little testy in his exchange with one Finnish reporter. Let me be clear. I didn't say we didn't guarantee it. We couldn't guarantee the future. You can't tell me whether you're going to be able to go home tonight. No one can be sure what they're going to do. I'm saying as sure as anything can possibly be said about American foreign policy, we will stay connected to NATO. Connected to NATO beginning, middle and end. We're a transatlantic partnership. That's what I've said. Kelly, how will other NATO members be watching that U.S. commitment? Very closely, because that question that he received in the press conference was essentially, how do you reassure all of the allies, including Finland, that the U.S. is going to remain a reliable partner? And as the president was just alluding to, he can't really guarantee that. This is not something that he individually controls. As he talks about overwhelming support from the American people and even from Congress, that there really is no question here The fact of the matter is he isn't guaranteed another term, and a future administration could theoretically want to withdraw from the alliance, especially considering that former President Donald Trump remains the frontrunner in the Republican Party, at least for the time being. And he, during his administration, clashed pretty hard with NATO leaders over issues like the funding of the alliance, that 2% target. 
we were speaking about earlier. And the president, President Biden, also was continuing this message of unwavering support for Ukraine specifically, and yet that also isn't a promise that he really can single-handedly make. Congress has a big role to play there, and there are members within it who would like to see funding for Ukraine's war effort stop. Literally just uh, this past week in the House, as part of the jockeying over the National Defense Authorization Act, 70 House Republicans voted in favor of an amendment that would have cut off all U.S. military aid to Ukraine. It failed, but still the fact that dozens of lawmakers voted for it, you can understand how that may alarm NATO members, those who are trying to assist in Ukraine's war effort, especially with an election quickly approaching in November of next year. Let's get to news this week out of Israel now. Protests erupted across the country on Tuesday. The, quote, Resistance Day demonstrations came after Parliament's first of three votes to adopt changes to the Supreme Court. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his administration want to limit the court's influence with their plan of judicial reform. Critics say he wants to erode checks and balances essential to democracy. James, tell us, what have the demonstrations looked like this week? Well, there were tens of thousands of people. They closed for a time the the, the international airport and the, the roads leading up to the airport. They're uh, outside the the parliament. Um, it just shows you that this this crisis that was created by the Netanyahu's government's decision to try to revamp the the judicial system is not over. It's not even close to over. And you know the the protesters. I mean, the the, the sort of umbrella concern here is. He, he leads one of the most right-wing, if not the most right-wing Israeli government ever, and its constituency is, is the religious ultra-Orthodox and the nationalists who want to basically um, uh, bring in the West Bank into Israel proper. And against the secularists and the uh, elites who have made an amazing economy in Israel. So there's a, there is a huge polarization divide, something Americans are probably familiar with, and um, – Everyone understands that the first step of an autocrat uh, is to neuter a ju- an independent judiciary. It's what we've seen in Hungary. It's what we've seen in Turkey. This is how you lose uh, your parts of your democracy. So there's a lot of very strong feelings on both sides. And um, they have decided they had – after the crisis in the spring, they – had these talks, they broke down. So we're right back to where we started, basically. And uh, they seem determined, this this right-wing coalition that he has assembled seems determined to keep pushing on this judicial reform. Jack, we know these protests have been going on for many, many months, right? Can you just remind us of the changes that the current judicial reform proposal is calling for? What, what would change? This is a little bit of a kinder, gentler judicial bill than it was before, if if only not much. Netanyahu has already dropped the part of the reform that would allow Israel's parliament, the Knesset, to overturn judicial rulings basically on a, a straight party line vote uh, for laws that are considered unconstitutional that go through the judiciary. Uh, he's now imposed what's called a reasonableness standard. Um, anyone who can figure that out um, – uh, yeah, I, I give good money to because people are debating that in Israel. Um, but it's basically the idea that courts should not have an unreasonable power to decide what constitutes a decision beyond the realm of reasonable reasonableness. So uh, a lot of word salad coming out of the Netanyahu administration. And like James said, the response hasn't been kinder or kinder or gentler, especially when you consider that Netanyahu's trying to ram this through the Knesset during the summer break, potentially. Uh, so a lot of political fissures that are happening. Netanyahu's really made, made nobody happy. He's isolated the, the far right 
uh, who were supporting these reforms. Uh, the people who are opposing him, of course, are, are back in force. Uh, and you have to question whether this is going to be something that, that brings into question Netanyahu's political survival here. Kelly, what about out of the Biden administration? How is the U.S. watching these developments and have they weighed in? They have. The administration actually has been intensifying its rhetoric to a certain extent as the unrest has escalated. The White House's National Security Council just this past week called on the Israeli government to protect and respect the right of peaceful assembly and went on to say that debates like the one around these proposed judicial reforms is a healthy part of a vibrant democracy, really trying to hearken back to democratic values. Obviously, it's a very tricky proposition for the White House, given that this is an ally. It's a little unusual to be wading too far into the domestic affairs of an ally, but clearly this is an area of concern if they feel the need uh, to speak on it. And President Biden himself has done so. In a CNN interview last week, he used even more provocative language. He said Prime Minister Netanyahu's coalition government has some of the most extreme members that he's seen in Israel. And it really just highlights that there is a lot of tension between Israel and the U.S. uh, in regard to this issue and others right now. And of course, uh, President Biden hasn't invited Netanyahu to the White House, even though he has invited the Israeli president. Let's hear exactly what President Biden had to say. Here he is speaking to CNN's Fareed Zakaria on Sunday. I'm one of those who believes that Israel's ultimate security rests in a two-state solution. So it's not all Israel now in the West Bank, all Israel's problem, but they are part of the problem, and particularly those individuals in the cabinet who say they have no right to be, we can settle anywhere we want, they have no right to be here, etc., James, how was this comment received in both Israel and the U.S.? Well, you, as you can imagine, received uh, had a, uh, the reception in Israel was mixed. Uh, the people who support this this move against the judiciary uh, were very critical of Biden, and and they they have uh, a principle to stand on, which is that you don't get involved in a country's domestic politics. I think it was very well received by the people who are protesting against these uh, this overhaul in Israel, and I think it's very well. Uh, received by American Jews because they've been uh, very outspoken in a lot of cases about their concerns about how right-wing this government is and what it's actually trying to do. Um, You know, President Biden uh, spent many years as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And when, you know, the Oslo Accords of 93, when the two-state solution seemed like the answer to this intractable problem between the Palestinians and Israelis, that is on life support, if that. And this this government, if it, if you ha- it had its way, would make a two state solution absolutely impossible and annex the West Bank. And um, successive administrations in this country have, all, have said that that would lead to an apartheid country where Palestinians are part of a one nation, but they get they are second class or third class citizens living under military occupation. Kaylee, as you mentioned, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not scheduled to visit Washington at the moment, but Israeli President Herzog will visit Washington next week. What do we expect to come from that visit? Yeah, he'll start at the White House on Tuesday, the 18th of July. And the White House says that Biden essentially is going to use this meeting to reaffirm the fact that the U.S. is committed to Israel's security. But importantly, in the statement the White House put out formally announcing this, he said they said that Biden will stress 
the importance of shared democratic values. And that does allude back to this effort on the part of Netanyahu's government to overhaul the judiciary, it seems. While he's here in Washington, Herzog also will address a joint session of Congress in honor of Israel's 75th anniversary. And Speaker McCarthy, in previewing that, has talked about strengthening the bond between Israel and the U.S. And if you remember, McCarthy, back in May, became the first sitting House Speaker in 25 years to address the Knesset in Israel. It's worth noting, as we mentioned, Netanyahu hasn't received this invitation, but back in May, McCarthy said he would invite Netanyahu to speak to Congress if Biden doesn't. So there certainly is still some tension around this visit, to be sure, but he's still being welcomed uh, here in Washington with all the pomp and circumstance uh, a state leader typically receives. Well, one bit of health news this week from the World Health Organization we should mention. Researchers say the artificial sweetener aspartame found in diet soda and countless other foods shows a, quote, possible cause of cancer. But the FDA disagrees and says the research doesn't mean that it is, quote, actually linked to cancer. The WHO did not change its, quote, acceptable daily intake, which is up to 12 cans of Diet Coke a day. (laughs) Meanwhile, a nutrition researcher at Harvard tells NPR, quote, for people who are presently consuming diet soda, the worst possible decision would be to switch to regular sugar-sweetened soda. Dr. Walter Willett says the best beverages for daily consumption are water, coffee, and tea. Let's head now to news out of Russia. On Monday, the Kremlin said Russian President Vladimir Putin met with Wagner mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin and his commanders just days after the group's revolt against the Russian government. Jack, President Putin called the Wagner group traitors shortly after that mutiny. What do we know about what happened at that meeting? Well, no word yet on whether they were drinking Diet Coke or regular Coke <laughs> at the at the meeting. But the Kremlin framed this as sort of a, a kumbaya moment between Putin and Prigozhin after Wagner's short-lived putsch. There were about 35 people at, at this three-hour meeting, including Prigozhin and, and some of his top deputies. And if you believe Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, which maybe you shouldn't, uh, he said the assessment of the meeting was uh, a positive exchange of views on the differences of the war. Of course, Prigozhin, very critical of the strategy that the Kremlin has taken. uh, And Wagner also sort of offering an explanation of this putsch, of course, that was deadly for Russian forces, killed 13 Russian service members uh, after an aircraft was downed. It still seems that the bad blood isn't yet over. The Kremlin has detained several top Russian military leaders connected to Wagner, including Sergei Surovikin, who was the head of the aerospace forces and, of course, led probably the most successful uh, branch of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It seems like there's not a major house cleaning in order. Uh, Prigozhin staying around. It's it's almost like the relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda in the 1990s, right? Prigozhin is sort of this chicken bone stuck in Putin's throat. There's no one else to keep Wagner in check on the African continent, but it seems like a moment where they're being put on timeout, not a moment of epiphany. Meanwhile, on Thursday, Russian drones attacked Ukraine's capital of Kyiv. At least three people were killed and four were injured. James, what is Russia's strategy here by attacking the capital once again? And what does all of this say about where the front lines are right now? Well, I think the strategy was to, just before the NATO summit, no one's Zelensky was going to be there to embarrass him by uh, launching attacks on on the capital that were tragically uh, deadly. However, 
little effect on the front line. It's it's just in some ways, uh, what's much more interesting is what's happened that Jack's referred to with the with the military leadership on a, on on the counteroffensive. We've seen not only this this general who was friendly with Prigozhin uh, disappear from and apparently detained, but we saw a senior Russian general killed in a in a Ukrainian strike this week. And we've seen, to me, the most interesting, which is the division commander, um, basically relieved because he was complaining up the chain of command that he wasn't getting sufficient support and artillery and, and casualty evacuation. And he called, he called also called the, the military chain of command treacherous. So their their military leadership is is in chaos right now. And and as someone who's covered wars and understand how the unity com- unity of command is is critical uh, during these operations, to see this kind of infighting. Um, it, it reflects extremely dimly about how the Russians are, are, are handling this counteroffensive. Is there a sense, James, that the counteroffensive from Ukraine is picking up speed? There were concerns earlier that it had kind of stagnated to some degree. Uh, to be determined, I'm not sure. I mean, they are probing for some place to throw the big effort at a, a, a point of weakness. We have not seen Ukraine yet commit those battalions of armor that we have trained and, and supplied with, with Western tanks and, and Bradley fighting vehicles, you'll know a lot more when those are committed and how much success they have. Right now, there's still it's still a probing action all along this 600-mile front, um, so to be determined. Earlier in the week on Saturday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky marked the 500th day of the war. In a video on Snake Island, an island in the Black Sea, Zelensky thanked, quote, everyone who fights for Ukraine. Kelly, what's the significance of Zelensky saying that and on Snake Island? Yeah, well, Snake Island is very symbolic for the Ukrainian war effort. If you remember at, at the very beginning of the war, a group of Ukrainian soldiers that were defending the island refused to surrender to a Russian warship, had some choice expletives in response to the Russian uh, demand to surrender. So this became a symbol, really, of the Ukrainian resistance. Even though Russia did seize the island, Ukraine was able to reclaim it. And so Zelensky in this video called it a place of victory. And he said that this was proof that Ukraine would be able to reclaim all of its territory that has been taken by Russia since the war started. Whether or not it was because Zelensky had just been on the island recording a video, Russia has attacked, according to the Ukrainian army, um, Snake Island on July 13th with a high explosive bomb. So it seems that there may have been some retaliation to this. But the symbolism of this video and the message is that Ukraine has every intention of winning this war and taking back what has been taken from them. Let's turn now to some environmental news. Japan is set to release radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean in August, more than one million tons of it, and some of its neighbors are not happy. The water has been held in tanks at the tsunami-wrecked Fukushima nuclear plant for over a decade now. On Sunday, some South Korean lawmakers criticized the International Atomic Energy Agency after the agency said Japan's plans for the water release were safe. And on Tuesday, Hong Kong's leader, John Lee, said the city would ban seafood products from Japanese prefectures if the water is released. So, Jack, the IAEA is the United Nations nuclear watchdog. How have they responded to the backlash about this water release being a safe move? 
They've mostly been in reassurance mode. They're assuring countries around the region, including the South Koreans, where we've seen the most vociferous response, uh, that the process meets international safety standards and does not pose environmental risks on the level, certainly, that people are protesting about. And keep in mind, levels of radiation do go down over time. This is not a one-to-one parallel, but I was at the site of the the nuclear tri- uh, the Trinity nuclear test last month, uh, and just being there will irradiate you less than a cross-country flight from New York to San Francisco. So the hope from international observers seems to be just that, that the radiation levels have gone down to a safe and acceptable level and will continue to go down. Of course, as you mentioned, the South uh, Korean opposition seems less than assured. They're calling for more experts on the case. And this is a foreign policy challenge for Japan, too, because they're in the midst of a historic defense buildup with China. Uh, They also have historic beef with, with South Korea, dating all the way back to World War II and beyond. They want South Korea on side if there's a contingency with China. So this is a huge foreign policy issue they're going to have to clean up after they begin dumping this. Well, Kaylee, Japan has launched a series of advertising campaigns to try to help convince the public that releasing treated radioactive wastewater from the plant into the ocean is indeed safe. But there's still skepticism and, and protest, as Jack mentioned, in Japan and abroad. That release is set to happen in August. What kind of support does Japan have to go ahead with the plan? Well, first on the subject of the advertising campaign, to put it in context here, as to how hard Japan is trying on this, in addition to just, you know, TV ads, as one would expect. They're doing things like the government setting up a live stream of fish swimming in a tank of treated wastewater, I guess, to prove that it is healthy. They're holding public events and festivals. So they really are engaged in this effort to garner support for this plan. Obviously, as we were just talking about, the IAEA has signed off. So there is that uh, support, at least from the official level. And a South Korean panel also, even with the geopolitical uh, difficulties, has backed the plan too. They said if it went according to plan, it would meet international standards. There are, of course, conditions uh, tied to that on the part of Japan. We understand that at the NATO summit in Lithuania this past week, the South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, requested that Japan have a role or South Korea have a role in monitoring the, the release of treated water. And should, for any reason, there be abnormalities, Japan would need to halt that water release. So there are you know contingencies attached to that. But then you've also had G7 countries uh, earlier this year saying that they supported uh, the IAEA's review and the decision that would be made. The U.S., for example, has backed Japan's plan. It really is the closer neighbors uh, like China who have put up much more resistance. Again, it is a proximity issue uh, to a large extent. So there is some support, but among the the populace in that region, it doesn't seem like uh, people are too on board with the idea of this plan or not thrilled about it, fishermen especially. Well, in some better environmental news, deforestation of the world's biggest rainforest has slowed. The Brazilian government announced deforestation of the Amazon was down by almost 34 percent so far this year. James, put that into context for us. How does it compare to previous years? Well, very favorably, um, you know, uh, President Lula's predecessor, as we all know, Bolsonaro, basically relaxed a lot of the restrictions against deforestation of the Amazon. He encouraged mining and encouraged 
agriculture in a way that um, was really dramatically uh, deforesting the biggest uh, forest on on the planet Earth. We've seen how important the Amazon is with all this climate change news we've had in recent months. Um, so that was a that was a trend that really needed to be reversed. And to his credit, Lulu ran for president on a pledge to to do this, and it's showing in, in just in less than a year already. He's having a, a pretty dramatic impact. So I think that that's very, very favorable. Well, back to the Netherlands now, where the premier is stepping down after more than 12 years in office. Prime Minister Mark Rutte has been called Teflon Mark, but he's leaving after his coalition government resigned last week. Jack, many saw Rutte as a steady leader, a potential future leader of the EU or NATO. He'll stay in office until general elections this fall. But why is he leaving after four terms as prime minister? Omna, he's got no leg left to stand on politically Rutte was also already running a caretaker government and lost two more coalition partners this week when he put limits on allowing children of refugees to enter the country. That could have kept those children away from their families for up to two years, and and that was too much for some of his more liberal coalition partners. This is a conservative government. Uh, too much for them to bear. Now Holland's heading for an election, and, and, and you mentioned this, but I want to footstomp this. This is a remarkable turnaround for Rutte when you look at Holland's longest-serving leader, but also a, a top-tier candidate for EU leadership. When I was talking to European officials throughout the spring, they said, look, if there was a race uh, for NATO secretary general, Mark Rutte was at the top of everyone's list. Uh, now he's without a chair at the dance. James, we we talked about the Netherlands on the roundup last week after the king apologized for his country's leading role in the slave trade for more than 250 years. The Netherlands is one of 27 nations in the EU. Help us understand, where does it generally fall on the political spectrum within that bloc? Well, as we said, Rutte is a a conservative leader and he's led a conservative coalition. So in terms of immigration, in the Netherlands was already pretty tough compared to a lot of other members of the EU. Uh, but I will, and you know, there w- there was a jump predicted um, of of these asylum seekers. Uh, he was trying to get ahead of that, keep his coalition. Uh, it was that was not going to be accepted by uh, more liberal members of his coalition. But I will say that the immigration problem is a problem from hell, and it's is a problem as we as Americans understand very well uh, how difficult and complex it is. But for the EU, it's especially difficult because they are the continent is surrounded by. Failed states like Syria, instability in North Africa, uh, and war in Ukraine, and the the detritus of war in, in Afghanistan. So they've had a huge immigration problem for years now, and it's destabilized their politics. It led to the Brexit, Britain, Britain's Brexit exit from the EU. It led to the rise of right-wing parties in Germany. It is a, it's led to these horrible situations where we're, the Greek Coast Guard is pulling bodies out of the, of, of the Mediterranean, um, and they have not got their hands around this problem, and it's going to continue to roil their politics, unfortunately. Jack, this is a topic we don't talk about as much as we should. Maybe migration worldwide, there are more people on the move right now than at any other point in modern history. How much is that affecting politics, particularly among European nations? A lot. And you look at, of course, this this war that's broken out in, in Sudan. Sudan now sort of uh, a failed state being combated uh, between two generals. Uh, there's still an, an issue, too, of, of getting American citizens 
uh, European citizens off the ground there. Uh, Afghanistan, the situation seems to be getting no better. So you're you're stuck with a lot of frozen conflicts, failed states uh, where people are leaving, migrating. And as James said, it, it puts a lot of political pressure on Europe, especially when folks show up on the doorstep. Remember that Afghan immigrants were being kicked out in Germany a year ago. So Ukrainian refugees could come in. So the overload is mind-boggling. I want to turn now to the United Kingdom, where one of the country's leading news anchors, Hugh Edwards, became the news. And it's a complicated one. So, Kaylee, help us understand. Can you explain the story a little bit? Yeah, well, the beginning of the story is that The Sun, which is one of the big British tabloids, reported allegations that an unnamed BBC anchor paid £35,000, which is about $45,000, for explicit images of a teenager. Then on Sunday, the BBC said it had suspended a male member of its staff following an allegation of paying a teenager tens of thousands of of pounds beginning when they were 17 years old. BBC said it first got that complaint. They first became aware of it back in May. Then it comes to light that it is Hugh Edwards. As you said, this is one of the biggest TV anchors in Britain. He's also reportedly the highest paid anchor at the BBC. He was identified by his wife as being the one that is in question here, that the allegations were made against. She said that he is receiving inpatient hospital care after suffering from serious mental health issues and has requested privacy for the family. But since that first Sun article, there has been a trickle of other allegations. Others published in the Sun include a 17-year-old claiming that Edwards uh, was following them on Instagram and messaged them with things like, you know, smiley faces and kissies. Uh, A 23-year-old then claimed that he broke lockdown rules to meet them during the pandemic uh, in February 2021 when restrictions in Britain were very, very strict. And then there were allegations as well from other BBC colleagues uh, that Hugh Edwards sent them inappropriate messages. Those also emerged over the course of the last week. So it's kind of a a laundry list here. As for what happens now, the BBC said it'll continue its internal investigation. So certainly he may face great professional consequences here, but not necessarily criminal ones. Uh, The police have said that it's concluded its inquiry into these allegations Mm -hmm. and they don't see any criminal offense uh, indication that it has been committed here. We should note on the Hugh Edwards story, the Metropolitan Police have found no criminal behavior. And as Kaylee mentioned, the BBC is conducting its own internal investigation right now. Meanwhile, also in England, a strike is underway by 75,000 junior doctors or doctors still in training who work for the National Health Service. They're asking for a 35 percent pay raise to match previous wages. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak offered raises of 6 to 7 percent this week for doctors, police and teachers. The strike is set to last for five days, but Sunak says, quote, no amount of strikes will change our decision. Before we end the show, I'd love to hear what stories each of you are following or will be following this week. Kelly, why don't you kick us off? Well, I'll be watching Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's going to be traveling ab- abroad again. She'll be in India for the G20 finance ministers meeting. And this is actually going to be her third visit to India in the last nine months. And this is significant because it's part of a broader effort on the part of the Biden administration to really strengthen ties with that country in particular as they try to counter China and diversify away from China. It's part of this broader friend-shoring effort, the U.S. attempting to strengthen its trade relationships with other partners that trust, broaden out its supply chains, and then become less reliant, essentially, uh, on Beijing. It's especially interesting given Yellen was just in China 
talking about not decoupling, not de-risking terms that she's previously used, but diversifying. So this really fits into the broader message. And in addition to the India trip, uh, after the G20 meeting, she'll be traveling to Vietnam as well. And again, that is about the economic relationship. This is the U.S. uh, trying to just turn away from China, but do so delicately. Jack, what about you? What are you watching for the next week? One of the things that was fascinating last week, and it's going to be a continuing source of heartburn between the United States and NATO, is the provision of cluster munitions to Ukraine by the Biden administration. Uh, this is something that's not really copacetic in Europe. Almost every NATO member that's not Turkey or, or an Eastern European country uh, bans the use of cluster munitions under the Convention on Cluster Munitions. And the Biden administration has also been on the defensive. They're saying they gave this to Ukraine basically in a uh, break glass in case of emergency scenario because of how dangerously low we are on artillery ammunition. Now the question is people are just gritting their teeth because as Ukraine begins to fire these things, these are highly explosive rounds, but they can also scatter munitions along the ground that could be left for people to pick up and uh, that could kill people in the future. James, what about you? What's in your notebook? I'm, I'm going to be covering the Aspen Security Conference next week and uh, looking at the agenda. I'm just struck by and, and very interested to hear how the top administration officials and experts from around the world are dealing with this fact that Ukraine has 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 basically changed the world. It's changed every aspect of our foreign and national security policy. It is ushering in a much more unstable geopolitics around the world and uh, trying to get our hands around what that looks like in, in America's place in that uh, is going to be a tall order. It will indeed. Well, a little bit of news before we go. India's space agency has launched a rocket that will attempt to land a spacecraft at the lunar south pole, an unprecedented feat that would advance India's position as a major space power. Television footage today showed the Indian Space Research Organization's LVM-3 launch rocket blast off from the southern state of Andhra Pradesh. I want to thank all of our guests today. A big thank you to James Kitfield, Senior Fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, and author of In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Thank you also to Kaylee Lines, anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV, and thank you to Jack Detch, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Arfi Getty. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz. Have a great weekend. This is 1A. These days, it can feel like the news is fighting for your attention wherever you turn, but staying informed shouldn't be a battle. Everything you need to navigate the stories that matter to you is at your fingertips. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download the NPR app in your app store today, or you can go to npr.org app. 
Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR, NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today.